This morning, I want to start with an optical illusion. In just a minute, the lights are going to go down and you're going to see an image on the screen. There's going to be a white dot right in the middle of it. If you focus as intently as possible on that right white dot, I think you'll see the optical illusion. Now, we've tried it from all the different seats, in the, not all of them, but many of the different seats in the sanctuary. It works pretty well. You can use the screens under the balcony, other places. But you've got to focus as intently as possible on that white dot. The less distracted you are, the more intense you focus, the better you'll see the optical illusion. Even when the picture changes, keep focusing on that white dot. All right, let's try this together. So we can lower the lights and run the, run the video. Okay, how many of you saw a rainbow? Excellent. For how many of you was the rainbow in color? All right, great. Now what we're going to do, you have to believe me on this because I'm a pastor, I can't lie to you. <laughs> we're just going to rewind it and play it again, okay? This is the exact same video, just played a second time. But this time, don't look at the white dot. Look anywhere else on the screen, anywhere else you want, just don't focus on the white dot, all right? Let's try it again. Okay, how many of you saw a rainbow? For how many of you was it in black and white? Okay. It was never, ever in color. That is the video. We have no, there's no splicing. There's no, you never, there is the, the rainbow at no time ever is in color. <clears throat> Isn't that crazy? What happens is, is your brain paints it in color. That when you're focused on that white dot, your brain paints the rest of it in color. And that's why you, when you watch it again without looking at the white dot, it's black and white the whole time. Now, look, if you don't believe me, you can, I, I just Google that. You can find it on the internet. That's where I got it. Go home and try it. That's, that's pretty cool. Now, it's an optical illusion. The rainbow is never in color, but our brains do paint it in color. And we think we've seen a color rainbow. Now, one of the reasons why I think there are optical illusions in this world is I think that it's a subtle reminder of an important spiritual point. I think God designed optical illusions into the world in which we live to remind us you can't trust your eyes. You can't trust what you see, that our eyes will lead us astray. Now, it's not just optical illusions that remind us of this. Our own experience in life reminds of this by a show of hands. How many of you have ever seen something that you wanted to purchase, purchased it, thought it was going to be great, and then realized it was a complete fiasco? Anybody have a bad experience with purchasing it? Yeah. How many of you here have ever seen a job or an assignment at your workplace that you thought was going to be great? And then when you took it, you realized it was a complete failure. Anybody have that experience? How about this one? Have you ever seen a person, a friend, an acquaintance, perhaps even a spouse? And then suddenly realized they're not who I thought they were. That you were disappointed and that suddenly what you thought you saw wasn't real. Anybody ever had that experience? How about, this is a positive one. Have you ever had the experience of having something very bad happen to you? Only to realize it was a blessing in disguise. You had that? 
What our show of hands teach us is that it's not just optical illusions, it's our own experiences. We've all had experiences where our eyes have let us down. We saw something we wanted to purchase. We saw a job. We saw a person. We saw bad circumstances, whatever it was, and we thought it's going to turn out this way, and it just didn't. We were wrong. We couldn't trust what we saw. Well, this point about not being able to see clearly, not being able to trust our own eyes is not just something that optical illusions remind us of, not just something that our own experience reminds us of. It's also a major theme of the scriptures that God is constantly reminding us that we cannot put faith in what we see. And one of the great passages of scripture that teaches us that point is 1 Samuel 16. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 16. If you need a Bible, there's one in the rack in front of you that you can use or underneath your seat. In those Bibles, it's page 202. 1 Samuel 16. We're going to take a look at this passage of Scripture which teaches this point that we cannot trust what we see. That our eyes are not a good guide for making decisions. Now, I don't think this is an accident that this message and this passage follows up what we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks. We've been talking about insecurity and arrogance. And last week I told you that insecurity and arrogance occur because we are looking to ourselves to solve our own problems. That we are looking to ourselves and think of ourselves as our own best solution. And that security and peace come when we look not to ourselves, but to God. Well, the point this morning is, is that one of the reasons why we cannot look to ourselves is because we can't trust what we see. That if we're not able to see things clearly or the way that they are, how in the world could we ever be in a position to lead our own lives? So let's look at this story. First Samuel 16, we begin in verse number one. The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. But Samuel said, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, the story goes on to say that Jesse has other sons besides Eliab. Each of those sons is brought before Samuel, and each time the same response from the Lord. No, not this one. No, not this one. Until finally all the sons are gone. And Samuel says to Jesse, well, you got to have another kid. (laughs) 
because none of these are the right guy. And Jesse says, well, there is one more. He's just not here. He's been out tending sheep. I couldn't possibly imagine you'd want him. Samuel says, it's got to be him. Bring him in here. And in comes David, the youngest, uh, youngest of the eight sons that Jesse has. Samuel sees him. And at that moment, God says to Samuel, that's the boy. He's king. And verse number 13. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now, the second half of 1 Samuel 16 tells a related story that's connected to the first half. When the Holy Spirit comes upon David in power, he leaves King Saul. The Spirit moves from King Saul to David. When the Holy Spirit leaves Saul, an evil spirit comes and begins to torment Saul. Meaning that he begins to experience irrational panic, fear, doubt, anxiety, perhaps voices in his head. This evil spirit begins to torment him. Now, one of the servants who's there notices that this is going on and, so, and offers to Saul. He says, why don't we go and find someone who plays the harp, who can come as very skilled in music. And when the evil spirit bothers you, we can have this person play the harp and that music will bring relief. And you will have comfort. And so Saul says, fine, go do it. So servant goes out and one of the servants happens to know David. And he happens to know of this boy. And he happens to know that not only is David a shepherd, he's also a good harp player. And he knows and sees, it says, that the Lord is with him. And so he invites David to come into the king's palace and to come be part of the king's court. And it says in verse 23, that whenever the spirit from God, that's that evil spirit, came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul and he would, be, he would feel better. And the evil spirit would leave him. Now, as you can imagine, this is the story of 1 Samuel 16. As you can imagine, the most important words in this story all have to do with seeing or appearance or looking at. In Hebrew, they show up all over the chapter. For example, in verse number one, even though our English text says, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. In Hebrew, it says that God sees one of Jesse's sons as the king. Verse number six, when, when Samuel goes to uh, Jesse's house and Eliab comes before him, it says that Samuel sees Eliab and thinks, I've seen this king. He's not right, but that's what he sees. In verse 17, when Saul says to his servants, yeah, that's a good idea, go find someone, he literally says, go and see for me a person who can come and play the harp. And then in verse 18, when the servant suggests David, he says, I have seen a young man who's skilled at playing the harp whom the Lord is with. The word see or appears or looks at runs throughout this chapter, but it's especially prominent, these words, in verse number 7. In fact, 25% of the words in Hebrew in verse number 7 are words dealing with sight, appearance, or looking at. Verse number 7 is the most important verse in the chapter and probably the most important verse in all of 1 Samuel. There it says, the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. 
Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the point is, is that humans, as humans, we don't look at the right things. That's what the example from the optical illustration or the optical illusion shows us. That when we focus on the white dot, it changes what we see in the picture. That's the point. That when we focus on the wrong things, we see something different. The point here in, in, in verse number seven, this is what God's saying, is that as humans, we're always looking at the wrong stuff. And when we look at the wrong stuff, it changes what we see. That we're not able to see some things that are there, or we see some things that aren't actually there because of what we're focused on. Now, this is not only true in verse number seven, it's actually going on in this entire story. In this story, there are at least eight things that humans see incorrectly just in this one chapter. For example, number one, Samuel sees death in Bethlehem. Meaning that he thinks if he goes to Bethlehem that Saul's going to kill him. That's what he sees. But he's wrong. Saul's not going to kill him. God's not going to allow that happen. But Samuel sees death. He just sees it incorrectly. When he gets to Bethlehem, the townspeople see destruction. They think Samuel's come as an avenging prophet. That he's come to declare the wrath of the Lord. That's what they see. But they're wrong. Samuel's actually come to anoint one of their townspeople as king. This is good news. One of their fellow Bethlehemites, Bethlehemites, whatever you say, Bethlehemites, is going to be king. That's good news, but they don't see that. When the townspeople are watching what's going on, they see an animal sacrifice. But what's really happening is an anointing of a king. Samuel sees Eliab who looks like he should be the king, but he's not. That's not who God has chosen to be king. He sees incorrectly. Number five, nobody actually sees the real king when the scene starts because he's not even there. Samuel shows up to anoint a king who's not even present. Nobody sees him. Number six, we as the readers of the text... We see a bunch of people who are consecrated for the Lord's service. And we would think that it would be one of those people who would be chosen. But God actually chooses the one person in the whole story who's not been consecrated. David wasn't there when the consecration ceremony happened. When Samuel shows up to say, okay, let's set everybody apart here for the Lord's service. The one person who's not been set apart for the Lord's service is the one person that God chooses. Number seven, in the second half of the story, when David is playing his harp at Saul's court, what Saul sees is a young man who's there serving him and playing music. But in reality, David is Saul's replacement. But Saul can't see that. And then finally, anybody who walked into the court in Israel would have looked around and seen David as a servant in that court. But in reality, he was the true king of Israel. The guy who was sitting on the throne was not the king. It's the guy playing the harp that's the king. These are just eight different examples in this one story of how humans do not see clearly. That's the point of verse number seven. 
See, the problem is, is God says that we look at outward appearance, but notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say man sometimes looks at outward appearance. This is what we always do. This is why all of us have a story where we can raise our hand and say, yes, I thought that purchase was going to turn out well. Yes, I thought that relationship was going to turn out well. Yes, I thought that job was going to turn out well. Or I thought this was going to turn out terribly and it turned out great. We all have those stories because God is saying as humans, we always look at outward appearance. And when we're focused on the wrong things, then we can't see what's really going on. That's why every optical illusion works. That's why all of these experiences point to the same thing. We cannot in our own power see clearly. We can't see the future clearly. We can't see ourselves clearly. We can't see other people clearly. We can't see God clearly. We can't see circumstances clearly. We can't see anything clearly. In this story, the prophet doesn't see clearly. The townspeople don't see clearly. Saul doesn't see clearly. Jesse doesn't see clearly. The point is the only person in the whole story who really sees what's going on is God. And the point of verse number seven is it's bad news. As humans, we are not capable of seeing clearly what's going on because we're always focused on the wrong things. You say, well, well, that's kind of depressing. <laughs> what hope is there? Good question. Glad you asked. It is interesting in this story that while nobody actually sees everything clearly, there are three characters who see more than we would have expected them to be able to see. The first is Samuel. At the beginning, he can't see. He can't see why he's supposed to go to Bethlehem. He thinks Eliab is supposed to be the king. But he does end up seeing that David is the king, even when David's not there. He can see at that point. The second is Saul's servant. Most everybody else would have seen what Saul was going through as some sort of personality disorder that was manifesting itself. The servant sees clearly what's going on. It's an evil spirit. He also sees clearly what the solution is. We need somebody who's filled with the Lord who can play music that will solve this problem. And the servant is able to see that David's that guy. That's pretty clear. He doesn't see everything that's going on, but he sees more than we would expect him to. The third person who's able to see is David himself. That when David comes into Saul's court, it says that every time the evil spirit came upon Saul, David knew it. He could see it. He could see it was coming. He would pick up his harp and he would play and Saul would have relief. Now the question is, what do these three characters, Samuel, Saul's servant, and David, have in common? What do these three characters have going for them that they are able to see at least slightly better than everybody else in the story? It's that all three are in a position of submission and obedience. Samuel doesn't want to go to Bethlehem. He thinks this is a bad idea. God says, you need to go and Samuel obeys. Samuel sees Eliab and says, that's not the king or says that is the king. God says, no, it's not. Samuel obeys because he is willing to submit to the Lord and to obey, even though he doesn't understand all this stuff. He does end up being able to see when David comes in, he's able to see that's the king. Saul's servants, 
Same thing, because they are servants. They are there serving the king of Israel. Now, yes, they don't understand that he's no longer supposed to be the rightful king. But to God's mind and to their minds, they are serving the king they were asked to serve. In that sense, they are submitting and obeying the authority that is over them. As a result, they're able to see. And David, who's being asked to go play a harp in Saul's court, He agrees and obeys. And because he's there in a position of submission and obedience to what the Lord is doing in his life, David's able to see more than he would have otherwise. And that's the point. The bad news is, is that humanly speaking, none of us can see anything clearly, not the future, not ourselves, not others, not circumstances, nothing. But when we submit And obey, we do begin to see because the Lord is saying, look, humans always look on outward appearance. That's why you can't make the right decisions. That's why you can't see things clearly. But I look at things you're not looking at. So when you submit to me and obey, then you begin to see things that you wouldn't have seen otherwise. And which of us hasn't been here? I mean, Saul is the one who can see absolutely nothing that's going on. That's because he's in rebellion against the Lord. He decides he wants to be his own king. And here's the irony. We've done the same thing. We think, I'm going to be in charge of my own life. I'm going to make my own decisions. And we can. We, we do that, don't we? But then if we're honest with ourselves, doesn't it feel like we're just flying blind? That when we're in charge of running our lives, it feels like we have no idea what the future holds. We have no idea who we are. We have no idea what we're doing. We're just wandering around in darkness. We're just going from day to day, from decision to decision. And there's no discernible pattern for how this whole thing fits together. That's the point of the passage. Is that when we run our own lives, we can't see anything. But when we submit and obey God, then suddenly we begin to see who we are where we're going, what the future holds, those sorts of things. And here's the point of this passage. Obedience precedes sight. Obey first and then see. Samuel can't see by himself. David can't see by himself. It's that they submit first, then they're able to see. How does that happen? Through submission and obedience, God's spirit opens our eyes to help us to view things from God's perspective. Last week, a young woman in our church, a high school student came to me and she told me that she was asking the Lord to choose a college for her. I go away with the high school students, the juniors and seniors uh, in the summer. And one of the things we talk about is listening to God's voice, letting God be in charge of our lives. And one of the main things that comes up during that conversation is choosing a school. How do you, how do you let God pick the school? And I can tell you, it sounds great in theory, but it's hard in practice to be able to actually have the courage to say, no, I'm going to let God choose. But this girl, I'm so proud of her, decided she was going to do that, that she wanted God to be the one who did the choosing, not herself. And so what she decided to do is she decided that eight days ago, so uh, last Saturday, she was going to pray. Now, that's not when she decided. She decided before that she was going to pray. But that's the day that she was going to want this to happen was eight days ago on Saturday. She was going to pray and ask 
the Lord that on that day she'd already applied to schools, she had gotten accepted to schools, she was getting correspondence from all these different schools, was trying to make this decision. She asked the Lord that on that Saturday, eight days ago, that he would have there be a letter in the mailbox and just one letter from the school that he wanted her to go to. And so she prayed. On Saturday, she opened the mailbox and there was indeed a letter and no other letters from one school. Now she's telling me this story last week, so that's seven days ago, and she's got tears in her eyes. And she tells me that the school that the letter was from was her least favorite one. It was the one at the bottom of the list. It's the one she wouldn't have chosen on her own. But the reason she had tears in her eyes was not because she was sad. The reason she had tears in her eyes is because she had come that Sunday morning asking for confirmation from the Lord. And the sermon last Sunday, if you remember, was about submit and obey. Don't be in charge of your own life. Let God be the one who runs your life. And so she was coming up with tears of joy in her eyes. That God was telling her and confirming what she thought she heard on Saturday. He was saying it to her again Sunday morning. And what she's saying to me is, I don't know why this school. I don't know why he picked this school. But I want to submit and obey and I'm going to go. Now the point of 1 Samuel 16 for her is that it's no surprise that God picked the one that was lowest on her list. That doesn't shock me in the least. Because as humans, when we think about choosing a college, we look at outward appearance. We think about things like which friends of ours are going to that school. We think about how far away is that school from home? How much does that school cost? What kind of living facilities does that school have? What kind of programs do they offer? And we make our decisions based on those things. But 1 Samuel 16 says God's looking at different stuff. God's looking at a potential future spouse who he's also sending to that school. God's looking at a potential future career change or major change that's going to happen perhaps two years into her career that she doesn't know about now, but God does. God's looking at a specific professor or a specific set of friends or a specific situation that he has in mind for her. God is probably looking at a certain amount of suffering and difficulties and trials associated with that school, which he's going to uniquely use to make her more like Christ. As humans, we look at outward appearance. God's looking at something else. And that's why his decisions sometimes seem so difficult to us. But the point of this passage is, is that she doesn't need to understand before she makes that decision, what all those things are. She needs to first submit and obey, and then she'll see. Maybe six weeks from now, maybe six months from now, maybe six years from now, maybe 60 years from now. But the point is obedience precedes sight. We obey, then we see. This is the way God has set it up. And so I'm so proud of her for being willing to obey and submit. And you know what? This is actually what this whole passage is about when it comes to David too. Think about David. It says in verse 13 that the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Now, anytime in the Old Testament you hear about the Spirit of the Lord coming upon somebody in power, you expect them to pick up a sword and go fight. 
You expect them to go set Israel free. You expect them to go do something mighty and amazing, something miraculous, something worthy of being recorded in Scripture. But look what the Spirit has David do. Look what his first assignment as king of Israel is. To go play the harp for a homicidal maniac who's going to be jealous of him and in the future attempt to kill him. Does that make any sense to anybody? If we were planning steps to be the best king you can be, that the first step would be to do this? Would anybody pick that? No. That's because we look at outward appearance. But God is looking at something else. And David doesn't understand. Why would I go play? I just got anointed as the king of Israel. The spirit has come upon me in power. Now you want me to go be heart boy? I guarantee you he doesn't understand. I guarantee you he has no idea, but what he does do is obey. He submits and obeys. And what we'll find out later as David's story goes on, not yet, but after the submission and obedience, we'll begin to see that this was the best preparation possible for David to become the next king. That being in Saul's court, that the opportunities David is going to get to have, the relationships he's going to get to form, even from just a human point of view, This is going to be the very best thing for him to be the king of Israel. That's what God does. He says, you can't see what I'm doing, but just obey and submit and then you'll see. And this is true not only for David or for choosing a college. It's true in our marriages. Maybe you're here this morning and your marriage is falling apart. And you know full well what the Bible says you're supposed to be doing, but you you can't see how your marriage could possibly be resurrected. You think, but you don't know my situation. There is no hope in this situation. I believe you. I believe that you cannot see any hope in that situation. I completely agree with that. But the point of this passage is is you won't be able to see until you start to obey. Until you submit to how God wants you to live out your marriage relationship. You say, but I can't see how it could ever work. Amen. You won't until you start. And then when you submit and say, okay, Lord, I'm here to obey. Then he'll begin to open your eyes. Then you'll begin to see. Maybe you're here this morning and you have gotten some bad news about a physical illness. And you're looking at this physical illness and you say, I can't see any hope in this. (laughs) Maybe it's a terminal illness. Maybe it's something that's never going to go away. Maybe it's something that is, is, is causing you great problems. And you think, what good could this possibly be? I'm telling you right now, you're not going to see the good until you submit to God's plan for you in this. That when we fall on our knees and say, okay, Lord, I don't see, but I'm ready to obey. That's when we begin to see. That's when we begin to see what this illness is going to do in our life, what God has intended for this illness to do in the lives of our family or our friends or our church or other people. We won't see before, only after. Because obedience always comes first, then comes sight. Now there's a more important application of this than any of the things I've given you so far. And now I'm speaking primarily to those who are here today who are not yet believers in Jesus. For those who have not yet accepted that Christ is Lord. What you need to understand is that nobody in 1 Samuel 16, nobody who was living at this time would have looked at this shepherd boy, Jesse's eighth son, who was basically forgotten about from an insignificant family in the little town of Bethlehem, whose first job was heart boy for the king. Nobody would have looked at that young man and said, 
He will be Israel's greatest king. Nothing that our eyes would have said would have told us that information. Nobody sitting there would have looked at him and said, there sits Israel's greatest king. But the point for you this morning is, is that David's story is a foreshadowing of another king whose name is Jesus, who will also be born in this same town of Bethlehem. And I'm telling you, when that baby is born to an unwed mother in a manger in this little town of Bethlehem, nobody using their eyes would look at that baby and say, he is the king of the universe. Nobody's going to look at this man, Jesus, as he grows up as a carpenter and say, that is the creator of the universe. Our eyes will not give us that information. Nobody is going to look at this man, Jesus, who was despised and rejected. And you know what the Bible says about Jesus? He was the kind of person that people were embarrassed of. Nobody is going to look at that person, Jesus, this historical figure who dies on a cross between two thieves, completely abandoned by humans and by God at the end of his life. Nobody's going to look at that guy, Jesus, and say, yes, that's the savior of the world. And nobody using human vision alone is going to look at this man who is completely and totally human, as human as any human who's ever been, and see that is the God of the universe. That's because as humans, we can't see clearly. Every time you raised your hand and said, yes, I made a decision that I thought was going to work out well and it didn't. Every time you said something bad happened in my life that I thought was going to be bad, it actually turned out to be good. That's confirmation of the fact that as humans, we cannot see. We're always looking at the wrong things. And what that means for you, my friend, who's not yet a Christian, it means when you look at Jesus, you're looking at the wrong things. There are going to be things about his life. The fact that he lived 2000 years ago, the fact that he was Jewish, the fact that that he was born as a little baby that are going to blind you to see who he really is. But the encouragement today, the good news is that when you submit and obey God, then you can begin to see. See, the Bible says that God is commanding every person everywhere to repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. It's a direct command from God to every single one of us here today, to you, my friend, today. What he's not commanding you to do is to repent and be convinced. He's not commanding you to investigate all the scientific evidence and have all of the proof and know for sure with your eyes that Jesus is Lord. That's not what he's commanding you to do. He's not commanding you to see and then believe. I don't believe because I understand. I understand because I believe. And the command to you this morning is just to repent and believe. And I'm here to tell you, if you're waiting for more information, if you're waiting for a clearer picture, if you're waiting for all the things to happen so that you can see Jesus, not the way society sees him, not the way the world sees him, not the way science sees him, you want to be able to see him. I'm telling you, it will only happen when you submit and obey. And then the scales fall off. And then you begin to see, listen, my friend, the people that are sitting around you today, it's not like we were born with supervision. It's not like we had x-ray vision. And when we looked at Jesus, we were naturally able to see this is the God of the universe. None of us could see that. 
The only difference between me and you is that when God said, repent and believe that Jesus is Lord, somehow he gave me the grace to obey that. And now I see. The Bible says in Acts chapter 26, that the task he has given to me and every person who is a believer is to open the mind, to open the eyes of those who do not believe, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, that you might receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are set apart in God, not because you saw how it worked, but because you submitted to God's command and obeyed. And this morning when you hear that voice in your soul saying, you, you are who I'm talking to. That's not my voice. That's God's voice saying to you, Jesus is Lord. And how you saw Jesus previously is just like how you saw that car you purchased that didn't work out very well or that job that you thought was going to be great or that optical illusion they showed. How you're looking at Jesus now is giving you the wrong impression of the reality. And the voice in your heart is saying, He is Lord. He is risen from the dead. He did die for your sins. He is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And that voice in your heart is saying, Believe! Believe! And if at this moment you say, Okay, I don't it. I don't get it all. I don't understand it all. I don't understand about sins and some guy dying on a cross and I don't understand how he can be God and I don't understand how he's alive and resurrected and I can't see him. If you're saying, but I'm willing to obey. I'm willing to obey. I'm willing to do it. I'm willing to accept that Jesus is Lord. Then you begin the journey of seeing. That's what it means to become a Christian. It doesn't mean we got everything all figured out. It doesn't mean we see everything clearly. It doesn't mean that everything has come sharply into focus. What it means is we've heard the living God of the universe say, repent and believe that Jesus is Lord. And we've chosen to submit and obey. Let's pray together. Father, how important is this truth? Lord, you have confirmed it on every side in our lives, whether it's through silly things like optical illusions or the experiences that every single one of us have had, where we saw something with our eyes and we made a wrong judgment. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and help us to see that this is not just a fluke, that it's who we are as human beings, unable to see things. God, I pray for those who are believers here. I pray for this amazing young woman who's willing to step out on faith and go to the college that you've chosen for her. God, I pray that in her obedience and submission, you would open her eyes and let her see. I pray for every single person who's here who's a believer, who has some decision like that in front of them. God, I pray that by faith they would step out and submit and obey. Lord, for the marriages that are broken, for the people like Steve who are looking for a job, for those who are dealing with health situations, for those who have broken relationships with a child or a parent or a grandparent, God, I pray that each and every person would hear the truth, submit and obey, and then they will see. God, I pray for those who are walking in darkness now who have submitted and obeyed. Lord, please show them your will. Show them where you're going. Show them the plans that you have for them, plans to help them and to prosper them and not to harm them. And God, I especially pray for those who are here this morning who are not yet believers in Jesus. God, I pray they've heard my audible voice. I pray they would hear your voice in their soul. God, you have commanding them to believe and repent, but the only way they can believe is if they know it's your command and not mine. God, would you speak to them right now in their hearts? Would you give them the faith to submit and obey? Lord, Satan has lied to them. The world has lied to them and told them that they've got to see more. They need more evidence. They need a clearer picture. God, right now in this moment, would you confront that lie? 
And would you help them to, to realize that all you're asking them to do is to obey. Obey the truth that they've heard. And God, I pray that this morning you would bring new souls into your kingdom. Like right now, Lord, that in their heart they would acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And God, we promised you at the beginning all the praise and the glory for it. And so we give it to you now. In Christ's name, we offer these prayers. Amen.